Hey you, welcome to Tea Talk, a space to share the therapy tea. I'm Shailene, your host, and I hope you'll join me each week as we sit down to share tips, stories, and conversations on getting better emotionally, recovering from trauma, and improving your overall quality of life. I want to remind everyone that even though podcasts can feel therapeutic, they are definitely not a replacement for therapy. Please, at any point, if you feel the need to take a break because the content is too heavy, please do that and take care of yourself. Also, if you're loving this podcast, please do me a favor and leave me a review, share your reflections with me on Instagram and share it with a friend who needs to hear it. All right. So I'm ready. You're ready. And we're friends now. So go ahead and sit down, cozy up and let's get ready for today's episode. All right. Hey everyone. Welcome to this week's episode. I am so lucky and fortunate to bring a dear friend of mine to the Tea Talk podcast. Let me introduce Michelle Richardson. She is the founder of Mindful Soul Center for Wellbeing, a thriving group practice right here in South Jersey. And there she specializes in treatment of complex trauma and dissociation, in addition to providing clinical supervision and consultation to clinicians in varied stages of their professional journey. She's also the co-founder of Syzygy. Did I say it? Right. Syzygy Institute, a company that she formed with her mentor, Bruce Hersey, to offer advanced training in IFS-informed EMDR for therapists. As an EMDRIA-approved consultant and IFS level one and two therapist, Michelle helps therapists wade through the often murky and complex waters of psychotherapy towards clarity and confidence in their work. At the Syzygy Institute, it's Michelle's mission to introduce therapists to the place where IFS and EMDR meet and generate lasting healing for their clients. So welcome to the podcast, Michelle. Thanks for coming today. Thanks so much for having me. So Michelle and I were just talking about a couple of things. One, I was giving her a hard time because it's so hard to hang out with this woman and I had to force her (laughs) to spend time with me. But Michelle and I (laughs) met, I guess it's eight years ago, you were just saying your daughter's eight years old. Yeah, Michelle and I were both grinding away, working for other people. And we had mutual clients that Michelle would refer at the time I was working at a community agency. And I remember Michelle telling me on the phone, this woman's like a stranger to me, you know, we're sending clients back and forth. And she's like, you know, Shailene, like, you've really got to leave that place. You got to get out of there. <laughs> and so every now and then I get a client who says something to me like, Shailene, thank you so much for opening this place. And there are people that that story traces back to. And Michelle is one of those people who was like coaxing me years ago. You got to get out of it. You got to do your own thing. You just need to do this on your own. And she was like, you were doing that for yourself. You were like building your own thing. And when was Mindful Soul born? Uh, Mindful Soul was born in June of 2015. Yeah. She's kind of like paving the way for herself. And then... She's like telling me to do the same and giving me all these tips and read this book and join this group and do all of this stuff. And so for anybody who knows me and is a part of the DBT of South Jersey community, know that Michelle is one of the people that really helped me pave that path. So a little fun background information for everyone. So I'm just so glad that you're here today. So today... Also, Michelle's doing really big things because she's putting together things that other therapists, like I'm sitting here as a therapist interviewing Michelle about things that I don't even know about, right? So like you just started this new training institute and what's different from this is you guys are putting together two forms of therapy that are both like widely used for treating trauma 
And you're putting those two approaches together, IFS and EMDR. Is that right? That's right. And we actually also sprinkle in a third therapy that my co-founder, Bruce Hersey, sort of got me hooked on, which is coherence therapy. So we're bringing, I know, know, right? Like like I'm missing out. (laughs) So we're bringing IFS and EMDR together. And then there's this like lovely little sprinkle of coherence therapy that just really helps sort of lock it all in, in this really integrative and um, effective way. Yeah. I'm like, wow, I'm didn't know that was going to come out. So see, like this is cutting edge (laughs) stuff, people like this is stuff you need to know about. And so the reason that talking to therapists in this way and like hearing from people who specialize in like trauma dissociation or all these other kinds of things that come with like really hard life experiences. When we seek out therapy, even myself as a therapist, you don't always know number one, what's out there in terms of different kinds of therapy. And you also don't know like what it is that you need. And so I love hearing from people who are not just you're at the expert level when it comes to EMDR, you've got the certification in IFS, you have like a ton of training in that. And so you have been able to like hone those things and then put them together in a package that is helping clients access even more. And I just think that's like the coolest thing because, you know, there's like risk involved in that. Like, I want to put these things together. How does this work? I don't know if you feel like that, but like, I'm always like, what are other people going to think and trying to like hone that in and just be like, no, I know that this works. And I know that this is something that people really need to know about. Yeah. Well, I think the heavy lift was really Bruce Hersey, who's, you know, been my mentor and been in the field for such a long time and has this like really amazing brain that has like figured out how to lock these different pieces together in a way that makes sense. But certainly I think as therapists, even we kind of get caught into our own camps, right? Like when I first got trained in EMDR, I was like diehard EMDR. And I'm sure you feel that way about DBT, right? Like we get kind of locked into like this camp, like (laughs) the thing that I'm doing. Right. This is the only way. Yeah, this is the only way. But part of it's also just our enthusiasm, right? It's like we found something that just, and for some of us, it's because it works for us or we see it working for our clients. So we get kind of glued to one thing. And when I was introduced to IFS, you know, I was already an EMDR certified therapist. I was, I think maybe working towards becoming an EMDR consultant. And so I was like dug in to EMDR Mm -hmm. and then I meet IFS and I swear I had this like identity crisis because I was like, oh my gosh, like, I do. who am I now? I'm cheating on EMDR. <laughs> I'm, che- yeah. I'm cheating on EMDR with IFS. Like this feels wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I actually even had an EMDR consultant once tell me like, well, you can't really do both. Like that still sticks with me. This, this person sort of telling me like, you're either one or the other, and maybe you use a little bit of the other, but you sort of have to pick one. And, oh my gosh, I was struggling so much with that. Like, Mm -hmm. no, you know, and then I met Bruce and I was like, oh, these two really go together really well. And, Mm -hmm. and I think the more experience I've gotten as a therapist, but also the more work I've done on my, on myself, it's, you know, just opened up the possibility that there's so many different avenues to healing. Mm -hmm. You know, there's plenty of times where I pull out DBT skills that I learned many, many years ago. And that I learned even just from our work together, you and mm-hmm. I and sharing clients and I'm like, oh, that really works. So I feel like there's so many different paths. Um, we don't have to be so rigid. We don't have to be so 
like married to one and can't do the other. Right. You know, I think that's part of, you know, really evolving as being professionals and people that are flexible. Right. Yeah. I mean, because even with clients, like I'm thinking that's not going to work with clients. Like it has to be this way. And this is the only way we're sitting here saying that healing isn't a linear thing and it's going to look how it looks. And so if I have to recruit some of this and some of that, if I'm knowledgeable enough, you know, this also doesn't mean that Michelle's not over here just trying random shit on clients. Like she right. also knows what she's doing. <laughs> just want to preface that because I know someone's going to come at me and be like, well, you can't just try anything. Um, but with done with intention and when you have a strong basis in this one area to be open and willing to bring some other strategies and interventions. And, you know, at the end of the day, if it's going to be helpful, then it's going to be helpful. So I want to talk a little bit about each of these pieces and how they go together and what they all mean. IFS stands for what and what's the headline version of IFS for anyone who may not know? Sure. So IFS stands for Internal Family Systems, which was created by Richard Schwartz and in many ways is viewed as an ego state therapy. So IFS has the premise that we all have these different parts of us. And then I think one thing that sort of sets IFS apart from other ego state therapies is this concept of the self with a capital S, sort of like the essence of who we are, Mm -hmm. that we all have this self. And then we have these parts that play different roles in our systems. And really, if you think of an external family, internal family systems is very similar. You know, I have parts inside of me that take on different roles, have different relationships, as I'm saying it out loud, I'm realizing some people are like, this sounds a little, a little crazy, but <laughs> <laughs> well, when you said like an external family, I was like, oh yeah, there's someone for everything. You know, yeah, when we think exactly. of our families. And so thinking yeah. of like my first thought when you said that was like, oh, chaos, <laughs> like, <laughs> which that's kind of how it can feel inside. Right. So if I have, for example, inner child parts, And then maybe I have really strong, big inner critic parts. There's going to be some different dynamics that are happening inside of my system, Mm -hmm. right? If I'm beating myself up because I have a strong part that criticizes me, but then I have a younger part that experiences shame from being criticized. Now I've got this dynamic happening inside that might mimic something that at one point, you know, along my life or along a client's life might have happened externally, right? And so these internal dynamics are important to get to know and understand so that we can help that internal um, family sort of function in a way where there's more balance. And this idea of self, again, where there's self-leadership, sort of like self is the conductor Mm -hmm. and these different parts are like the different instruments. And you know, the music isn't going to sound very good if like only the, you know, the drums are beating and everyone's doing their own thing. But just like, you know, an external family, just like a regular family, when we work through different barriers to communication or, you know, how we relate to each other and treat each other, that can happen inside as well. Yeah, it does. The self reminds me of like wise mind in DBT. Like we're trying to encourage, uncover, and find wise mind for individuals, for ourselves as therapists and not trying to stay in there all of the time, but like having awareness to it when it's needed, making decisions from that place. Okay. EMDR, tell us what EMDR is, the headline version, what it stands for. Okay. So EMDR is eye movement 
sensitization reprocessing created by Francine Shapiro. And essentially what EMDR sort of scribes to is the adaptive information processing model. All right. I'm getting super nerdy here. So I'm going to try to break it down in a way that's (laughs) a little more digestible, but essentially EMDR is working with networks and it's using the past as a way to heal and then resolve some of the issues that are showing up in our present. So EMDR uses eye movements or tapping, things like that. You might see in an EMDR session that helps activate these neural networks, gets them going. And then there's protocols to follow that will help resolve, really resolve trauma. And once those traumas are resolved and aren't feeling as um, easily activated, triggered, the beliefs that we have about ourselves about that experience can also get reprocessed. So essentially going into EMDR, you can resolve some of these previous experiences and come out with perhaps a more adaptive way of viewing the world around you and viewing yourself. Okay. EMDR is a popular one. I feel like a lot of people know to look for EMDR when they're looking for trauma therapy or, you know, if there's a fear or phobia or something, they can't get back. People ask for EMDR. I think sometimes without even really knowing what it is, because they just know, I feel like that's the thing that's, that's generally associated with it. People don't know as much about IFS and I don't know about this last, what was the last one? The sprinkle coherence therapy. Tell me what that is. So I'm not as experienced with coherence therapy. It's something I really have picked up along the way in working with Bruce Hersey. But coherence therapy comes from Bruce Ecker's work. He wrote a book called Unlocking the Emotional Brain. And coherence therapy is really about emotional learning and how the brain sort of learns and what we can do. Not sure I'm going to do a great job of of nailing this one, but Basically, what we can do to help unlock that emotional learning um, and and sort of Hmm. be able to access new learning that might be more adaptive. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does. Especially when you think of like, again, I just keep going back to trauma, but I think of like parts or yeah, I mean, parts is a really great way to say it of yourself getting stopped or stunted at younger emotional levels and not having the ability or the language to yeah process that in a way that it leaves you. And so that little bit that you said, even I'm like, okay, that, that makes sense. I could see that. Or even from an exposure standpoint, like being able to access an emotion, understand it, label it, learn from it and like, let it go. Yes. And I think what's really interesting about it is you'll come across people who've been in therapy for a really long time, but something is not resolving. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times it's because of that, you know, this idea of like unlocking the emotional learning. It's like you're trying to layer learning on top of old. But if you don't resolve the old, we can't have full access to the new. So the old learning is still what's going to show up almost like a software system. That's still going to be the operating system. The new program isn't able to kind of rewrite the old program. There has to be something else that helps Mm -hmm. resolve that in order for people to have access to it. Cool. So things are happening. (laughs) 
<laughs> like, um, <laughs> things are moving. Yeah. This is great for the world, right? Like we all need more ways of healing and avenues and, and what works for someone might not work for somebody else. And so having these different options that feels hopeful in a lot of ways, go back to IFS and sure. let's talk a little bit about what that's like, why we like it, maybe why we don't like it, like whatever it is that comes <laughs> up around it. So I'll tell you guys my, I'm trying to go back in the brain Rolodex to like, when did I first hear about IFS? It was probably from you. I remember some text that was kind of like, I'm really digging this IFS stuff. <laughs> this was a long time ago. This was years ago. I remember there was like an excitement of you learning about this. And then, you know, you were off probably doing a million hours of training in it. And then somewhere else in there, I was looking for a therapist and you said, yes, you can see my therapist. She's amazing. Shout out to Karen. Yes. Shell and I have both gone to the same therapist. <laughs> Yay, and Karen. Karen. Yeah. Karen is an IFS therapist. And so that was my first exposure to IFS. And I have to tell you, it really blew my mind. I feel like it was very effective. I feel it was incredibly difficult and challenging. Like, there would be times where I'd be like, I don't really have much to say to Karen today. I don't really know. Like maybe we don't need to meet. And I would just be like completely open and bawling at the end of the session. I'm like, <laughs> how the hell does she do this? Like she's got ninja skills. Like it just happens quick. So there's that. And then as a clinician, I find myself naturally using parts language, even in DBT especially yeah. when like willfulness shows up or resistance shows up. I feel like the language around parts has been really awesome. And in the way that it's really awesome is like, in a way it kind of takes the pressure off of like you versus me because it's like, oh, but there's a part that's doing that, you know? Yeah. So those are the things that I've seen with, what about you? Like, how did you get pulled into it? What's your experience been with it on both sides? Yeah. So I. What led me to IFS was working with really complex client systems, right? Mm -hmm. So I'll just use system as the word here, but, you know, working with folks who, you know, we're doing all the things we're doing DBT, we're doing EMDR, you know, we're doing all the things and something's just getting in the way. We're not progressing, you know, a lot of stumbling blocks. I had a client in particular that sticks out in my mind who um, went through some really significant challenges. And somehow my something turned me on to this idea of parts. And I started kind of poking around the internet and poking around trainings to learn a little bit more. And I, I stumbled on some workbooks and books. And so I was doing a little bit of self-teaching, you know, trying to understand it. And I started using some of it with this particular client. She and I are still working together today and we still reflect back on this and going, wow, thank God I found IFS mm -hmm. because it allowed us to work in a way that felt so much safer and more respectful for her protector parts, mm -hmm. right? And so you just mentioned like in DBT, when you're working on willingness and willfulness, if we understand that willfulness is a part and that um, in IFS, you know, there's certain ways that parts sort of behave that the premise is really that there's always a positive intention, 
right? So when we're working with things inside of ourselves that feel resistant or willful or things in in our clients that feel resistant or willful, if we understand that as this protection, and I almost would like the word protection instead of resistance. Resistance is a word used in therapy a lot. And I really like the word protection a lot better because it it does change mm-hmm. the frame, right? Now I can get curious about, you know, I wonder what this part of this person is trying to protect. You know, I can get curious about the problem that that part is trying to solve, even if I don't understand it. And if, if I can just be with that and have some compassion and some respect for that, that is sort of the work, right? Like that is the important stuff. And I find that we get somewhere actually a whole lot faster by going in this much slower path. Yeah, a hundred percent. A couple of things stood out. The resistance versus protective that gives space. I'm thinking to myself, my God, like how many times I'm sure I would have sometimes I'm like, what is Karen writing about me? Like, what are her notes? Clients (laughs) resistant, you know not willing. And there were sometimes I remember being in sessions and being like, no, I cannot, I will not do that. Like, I'm not going to do that. And, um, the reframe on protective parts, it just gave me a little bit more space to be like, okay, so I'm not just all resistant. There is a part of me that's resistant. And I noticed that movement with clients too, right? Like, so if a client comes in and they're like, I couldn't do my diary card, or I didn't get it done this week, instead of, you as a whole person didn't get done. It's like, oh, okay. So like there's a willful part that's showing up or there's a protective part that's showing up. Let's figure that out. Let's see what it needs to gain permission. It also feels very consent-based. Like there's a lot of like mm-hmm. asking for permission throughout, which really strengthens, I would imagine that like whole self wise mind concept because like the individual going through the therapy is the one who's going in and checking in. What do you need? what might need to happen in order for us to be able to move through this or move forward in this. And so that feels like a different shift too. I know you said it feels a lot for your client. You were talking about, it felt a lot more respectful and safe. And I imagine that part of it has to do with that too. Absolutely. There's a lot of permission seeking. There's a lot of safety that's established, but you know, I think Shailene, the other really key thing here, you know, in this type of training is that the therapist needs to have gone through it themselves. Mm. Right. And and I I think that that's true in, in almost any therapy. Like sometimes it's like, we can only take people as far as we're willing to go ourselves. Right. So if I'm working on my own resistant parts, right. Or I'm working with my own protectors that are keeping me safe from going into places that are, you know, maybe upsetting or, you know, there's times in therapy where I don't want to go into something because I've got to go through the rest of my day later. Yeah. Right. So I, you know, if you've ever experienced like, okay, there's a wall there. Mm-hmm. And if it's, well, yeah, of course, of course there's a wall there. Cause you have to go and function and do all these things later. So I think we have to sort of get in touch with our own systems in order to be able to help facilitate that for others. And what I loved about my IFS training my level one, I mean, really, I felt like that was one of the most honestly transformative experiences of my life, you know, doing this long-term and, you know, experiential intensive training. It was six weekends over the course of a year. And what was kind of nice about it is because I was there for three days in a row for a weekend, you know, my system was able to relax a little bit. So I was able to do some really deep work during the practices when I was in the client role. 
I was able to go to places that maybe I normally wouldn't be able to go in just a weekly therapy session because I've got a really heavy system of manager parts that are like, oh, we have a lot to do today and we got to keep it all together. I don't have time time (laughs) for this. I don't have time for this crying (laughs) shit. Like, forget that. Right. (laughs) So sometimes having like extended sessions or realizing that people's systems need longer, I think can Mm. be helpful. And certainly for me, doing an experiential training like that gave me a real sense of what I was offering my clients. And having also greater respect for the protector parts that show up along the way in therapy, because I've come across my own. Yeah. That gave me a lot of perspective too, to be like, okay, Shailene, you need to slow down just because this isn't happening for so-and-so in 50 minutes, which makes me think about the medical model and the Westernized way of seeing healing. And it's like, if you're dealing with insurance, you get the time that you get and they kind of dictate This is how long it's supposed to take, which inadvertently makes you feel pretty shitty as a client and as a therapist, if you haven't met these goals or these checkboxes. And that really puts a damper on the whole like hopeful healing vibe, right? (laughs) So like something that's supposed to help you can inadvertently end up really messing with your, like the trajectory. And I do think a lot about how much time and space is needed to like open up safely and close. And a lot of times that's not happening in 50 minutes. So thinking about having longer sessions or doing what you can to extend that, that's really necessary. And I mean, like on therapy days, I don't schedule shit for after like nothing. Like I cannot, if it is, it has to be like a fun social thing. And even that because it just feels so heavy and depleting. So that's another really good point to consider too. And it's such a challenge. I think you just spoke to like the insurance piece and, you know, certainly the more someone's experienced, the more complex their system is, or the more trauma, you know, they've been burdened with. Those are the ones that need an extended session the most, Mm -hmm. you know, and then we're so limited by reimbursement and things like that. It's definitely a tough spot for, I think, a lot of therapists. Yeah. And also I missed this from earlier, but I just wanted to shout you out guys find the type of therapist who's out there reading freaking books at night, trying to figure out how to help their (laughs) clients. Like we're out here just being humans. Like, you know what? Something's not working. And let me just see, Oh, let me sign up for a training. That's going to last a year. And it's going to take six of my weekends. But like, this is a lot of behind the scenes stuff that therapists, you know, I think good therapists, like good humans do that, you know, clients don't always really know about. And I think that number one, like it just shows that like genuine human connection, like, Hey, I don't really know, but we're going to figure this out, but also staying curious and being willing to learn to open yourself up because you said, not only has it changed things for your clients, but it's changed a lot of things for you. We're in this unique situation of like both having the same therapist. So I'm curious like, <laughs> what your experience has been with seeing Karen and like, how that was for you in early times. So I have to tell you, I went in and I was like, Michelle did not tell me it was going to be like this. It was so hard. And I just, I remember leaving sometimes feeling like I was on fire, like internally, it just felt so hot and hard. And I was like, Michelle set me up. She told me that this was going to be like, fine. And it was, it totally wasn't. She's so awesome. And she's so great. But I'm curious about like what your experience in going through that type of therapy was as well. Yeah, I think, I mean, I sought her out because I was getting trained in IFS. So I 
maybe knew a little bit more about what I was getting myself into. Home field advantage. (laughs) But still, you know, there's something super vulnerable about going internally and checking in with your own system and seeing what unfolds. And, you know, I have to give Karen a lot of credit because she is very seasoned and, you know, that safety piece is paramount. I think working with someone who really knows the model that you're working with and is really offering that safety that's like the biggest ingredient to the success of the therapy, because I I need to know that no matter how deep I go, Mm -hmm. um, that I can still walk out the door and come back the next week. And really, I think that was sort of the struggle that I was having with EMDR and that I see in a lot of my EMDR consultees is, you know, when you're not recognizing these protections in the system, EMDR has a way of pushing past them. And then people experience, you know, we call it backlash and it starts to not feel safe. And it may not be EMDR. There's a lot of therapies like that where therapists are inadvertently, usually completely either unknowingly or certainly unintentionally pushing past certain layers of protection. And the problem with that is that if that happens week after week after week, you're going to start feeling a little phobic about going back to therapy. Right. And so for you, Shay, I'd kind of be curious, like having that initial experience with IFS of leaving and feeling like you're on fire. How were you able to go back? Um, That's a great question. I mean, first of all, I feel like in hindsight, I probably really jumped into a really hard thing. Not only IFS therapy, but I did this as family therapy. And so the tricky thing about that is like, not only am I working through my own parts, but like my family member is working through that too. And we're working together while trying to figure it out. Like, and that is incredibly hard work. Like family therapy is something I don't really ever want to do. Like, it's just incredibly hard. And every therapist has their own thing that they're drawn to. There are a lot of people, you know, who have told me like, I couldn't do the work you do. And that's fine because everyone's got their thing. And family therapy is just, I feel like it's so difficult because you're not just dealing with two people, three people, four people you're dealing with, you know, each person times, let's say everyone on average has like eight parts (laughs) (laughs) and you've got like one referee in there trying to manage all of that. And so that's a lot. I think like what kept me coming back is like, I felt very certain that she knew what she was doing And I also was like, damn, like if this hurts this much, like it probably has to come out. You know, I think it's really easy. I know in um, sensory motor therapy, Janina Fisher's work, there's the going on with normal life part, which is just like, we need that to get shit done. Like I can't be in those hurtful places all of the time trying to work through that and process that I got to work. I got a kid. Like I got, I have things to do. And so that's there, but I think at the same time, there is a way that we can just kind of like inadvertently push things down. And then before you know it, something will like pop that string. And then you're like weeping about something. Holy shit. Like, where did this come from? And so I felt like she really knew what she was doing. And I was kind of surprised, like, oh, I didn't realize there was this much here. And so for that reason, I kept going back, but yeah, it was really challenging. And then also, 
So EMDR, you're putting your, your main, I want to say bread and butter, but bread and butter is not what I want to say, but you're, <laughs> you were very into EMDR. Like that's where you're at. And then you find IFS and trying to help one of your clients. And then you're like, oh, this is really helpful for me too. You find a therapist and then you start putting them together. Now myself, I've never gone through like a straight EMDR type of therapy, but Karen again, uh-huh. <laughs> also uses EMDR. And I remember this one time, it's like really challenging, but I remember one time I had like a health scare and I was like freaking out that I was going to die. This was at the end of 2020. I was waiting here back to find out if I have like cancer and because it was 2020, it took so long. So this is like two months of like agonizing, waiting, test, test, like just that in itself completely sucked. I was like, so scared. I was just like having these horrible flashing images of like me being very sick at the time we were closing on a new house, a bigger house. And I remember telling a friend of mine that I was waiting on these results. And as I told her, I started crying and I was like, I just bought this big house. Like, what am I doing? Like, who's going to be in this house? Like, I'm not going to be there. And I just like, started mm. crying. Oh, it's like hard to talk about now. And so I talk about this in therapy and this is when we started doing some EMDR. I remember she had me talk about it and ask me what I saw. And I remember seeing my new house, the house I'm in now. And I was describing the room. I was like, it's a big bedroom. And she's like, what do you see? And I was like, I see myself in bed, just like withering away, like staring out the window. And she just kept saying like, okay, go with that. And then hands, opposite hand, opposite shoulder, kind of like butterfly tapping myself. And I remember being like, what the hell am I? Why am I tapping myself? Like, this is scary. Do you hear? Like, somebody needs to tell me that I'm going to be okay. Like, I don't want to talk about the story. Just tell me, like, you're probably going to be fine. And so what happened was I just kept talking about it. And somehow, all of a sudden, it just felt like distant. Like, that image just suddenly, I don't remember what it turned into, but like, it just felt not real. not necessarily like, Oh, this isn't going to happen. It's not like my concerns about whatever these results would say. It's not like that went away, but there was space and it wasn't so scary. It was just kind of like, Oh, like that's a memory I had or an image that I have. And so tell me what the heck was happening (laughs) there. Cause that felt very ninja too. Like I was like, Oh, you know, two minutes ago, I'm like devastated in it. I feel like I'm in that room falling apart. And then I was like, Oh no, that's someone else. Like, that's not me from tapping and talk. I was like, how is this happening here? What's going on? <laughs> well, and there's a couple different ways I could talk about it, but in the simplest way, EMDR can desensitize, right? So it's bringing down that activation level from the trigger, right? The trigger of this medical, you know, stuff looming and this envisioned future. But I think that the other cool thing about it is that if that's not taking up as much space, you now have access to other knowledge that you have. I'll almost DBT this a little bit, right? So like emotion mind takes over, Mm -hmm. right? And so EMDR kind of helps chill that out a little bit. We're not making it go away. Mm -hmm. So let's let's bring parts in here too. Let's there's a big part Mm -hmm. that's having this big emotional reaction. So we're helping that part sort of calm down, you know, and so the system can calm down. And when it's not taking up as much space, there's room for self, right? There's room for other self-knowledge, you know, like I'm supported. Mm -hmm. 
we may not be able to say I'm okay. Cause we don't know. Right. right? In that situation, you didn't know. Right. So we, we can't lie to you and say, we know this isn't going to happen. Is what right? I was hoping for. Right. <laughs> like, I was looking for, you're going to be fine. Yeah, it's Everything's going to be fine. Right. And there's like a, you know, there's a place for that, but it just, in therapy, like you don't know, like you can't, you can't say yeah. that to your client. Like, yeah, everything's yeah. going to be fine. And that just wouldn't have helped me at all. But it gives more space to sort of go, I'm not alone. Mm -hmm. I'm supported. I'm loved. I have people. Mm -hmm. I have internal resources. I have competencies and knowledge and resilience. But all of that stuff goes away when we're triggered, right? All Mm -hmm. of that goes away when we're triggered because a a part or an ego state or an activation level, however we want to look at it, right? There's so many different ways as therapists we can look at that, but something's activated and now it's taking up a whole lot of space. Mm-hmm. And EMDR can really help facilitate that sort of deactivating, unblending a little bit. And now there's more room for adaptive information. Yeah. And it felt like it wasn't a memory. Thank God it wasn't a memory. It was more like an, it was an image, like this intrusive yeah. image that was coming up and like it was hot. And then it just felt like kind of cool. Like it didn't have as much power anymore. And I just remember, I remember telling Lisa, my clinical director who also does EMDR. I was like, and then I was just tapping myself. And then it was like, just felt like it went away. And she was like, yeah, that's what happened. And I was like, that's so crazy. Like, this is so weird. And I remember also doing some, again, just kind of feeling it, not really understanding it or how to explain it, but also being like, okay, something is here and it's really helpful. And I remember teaching a yoga for trauma class and having everyone do these like butterfly shoulder taps to really like lock in the feeling that they were yeah. having. Like, okay, you're being filled with this sense of, I can't remember what the theme was. Maybe it was gratitude or something, but like, okay, let's try and have this like physical representation of locking that in as a resource that you kind of want to keep around for a bit of time. So, so yeah, if someone's looking for therapy and they have the fortunate chance to be between IFS or EMDR, like how do you find you're mixing them together, obviously, but like, yeah, generally speaking, who's a good candidate for IFS versus EMDR? Um, that's a really good question. I think I'm going to flip it a little bit because I think it's really, it's not in, you know, who's a better candidate for which it's more, you know, you want to work with a therapist that has some seasoning and expertise. You don't want someone who, you know, isn't actively trying to learn, grow, do consultation. And I know that's hard to read off of somebody's bio on a, mm-hmm. you know, a therapy profile. I think for EMDR therapists, I always recommend finding someone who has pursued certification because mm-hmm. there's basic training, but then there's a whole other um, level to the mm-hmm. process to getting certified. And so I know that if I'm referring someone to someone who's EMDR certified or is working towards certification, that they're in consultation. So they're taking the hardest things that they're having happen in session and they're bringing it to someone who's more experienced than them. And they're learning from that. And they're going to come back to that client with different ideas or other mm-hmm. collaborations. So I always look for that. When I hear that somebody was EMDR trained, but they don't really use it or they're not, you know, that's not going to send someone for EMDR. Yeah. 
I dabble. Yeah. I, d- I dabble <laughs> at EMDR. Like, well. yeah. If you see dabble, keep scrolling. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and you know, the, the thing with IFS is it's really taken off in the last couple of years. I feel like I was mm-hmm. super lucky because I got trained at a time when it wasn't incredibly hard to get into a training. Yeah. You got trained when you could get trained. Oh, like, yeah, this is a hot item right now. now. It's like, there's a lottery. <laughs> yeah. Wait for the chance to get in to pay thousands of dollars and spend all of your time doing this. So it really yeah. has blown up. It has blown up. And so with that, for therapists, I usually recommend if you can't get into a level one training because you can't win that lottery, mm-hmm. you want to try to do a training that's at least experiential. There's a lot of people out there doing exactly what I did before I got trained, which is reading and listening to podcasts and YouTube. Two videos Mm -hmm. and, you know, definitely do all those things. But there are some really great IFS people out there that are doing experiential intro trainings. Um, And I think that's a good option, probably a more affordable option than jumping full blown into a level one and, you know, trying to win that lottery. I do think that IFS makes EMDR better. I think EMDR can help IFS be efficient. I think there's just a lot of ways that the two work well together. Most of the folks that come to our trainings at Syzygy are EMDR therapists who have a variety of background knowledge in IFS. And we just try to, you know, we're always encouraging pursuing full IFS training, go try to win that lottery, you know, like there's definitely nothing that compares to it, but we do have a lot of people with a variety of IFS knowledge. And so I do think that any type of knowledge in parts work is going to help EMDR be more efficient and more successful. Can I say like, what should somebody do either or, you know, if you're someone who's had a lot of difficulty sticking with a therapist or you're somebody that finds that you shut down easily in therapy or you've been deemed resistant, right? Like if you're someone like that, then I think finding an IFS therapist is a really good move Mm -hmm. because I think it's just going to feel like a safer, slower process for you. And I hate when people feel defeated in therapy. Yeah. And I hate that even in my past lives as a therapist, that there's probably been people that have worked with me that felt that way, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, because inadvertently I didn't know that I was maybe going too fast. And so IFS has really helped me with that as a therapist. And I think for people who feel like tried everything and nothing works and I, I can't get to where I need to get, like, I think IFS is a really good modality for that. Yeah. And if you're a therapist who thinks that you have no problems and nothing to work on, you might need IFS as well. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) With some sprinkles of other things too. Okay. So if you guys are lucky enough to find a therapist who does IFS and EMDR, it sounds like that's also a really nice place to be, but just know that not everything's going to work for everyone. And our hope in sharing this talk today is that we've just given you something else to look into if you are feeling stuck or if maybe these modalities will be helpful to you. If you're in the South Jersey area, you can find Michelle's practice, Mindful Soul Center for Wellbeing in a couple of different places now because you're in Medford and Audubon, Collingswood still? Haddon Haddon Heights. Yep. So you can find her practice at Mindful Soul. Is it mindfulsoul.com or is it? mindfulsoulwellbeing.com mindfulsoulwellbeing.com and then what's the instagram handle uh same thing mindful soul wellbeing okay and if your therapist looking for training in the areas of 
EMDR and IFS and the sprinkle of the something new, you can find Michelle and her new company, Syzygy. Can you spell that? Oh boy. S-Y-Z-Y-G-Y Institute. Perfect.com. <laughs> and we'll link to that in the show notes and all. Great. Yeah. And Syzygy Institute does offer some intro to IFS workshop. So for those that cannot get into that lottery, come join us. Hopefully you'll enjoy it. We do offer two-day experiential workshops virtually. Would love to have more IFS-informed DMDR therapists out there. It'd be awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks for the amazing work that you're doing. And thanks for sharing a little bit of all of these different pieces with us. I feel like we could definitely keep talking forever on a lot of this different stuff, but until next time, thank you so much, Michelle. We'll see you again soon. Great. Thanks, Shailene. All right. That's today's episode, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to Tea Talk. I hope that your cup of tea is full today and that you were able to pull something out of this for yourself. If you know someone that needs to hear this episode, please send it their way. And let me know what you're thinking by sending me a message on Instagram. I love hearing from you all. And make sure to follow the podcast so that you never miss an episode. And if you are loving what you're hearing, please leave me a review and a rating. It would mean so much. All right, friends, take good care and I will see you next time.